And to be honest with you, the baptismal view of Presbyterians seemed Catholic, Roman Catholic to me. I, do, I think I thought of baptism too much in very subjective terms. It's really about what I'm doing, not about what God's promising or signing, right? Like it's a sign and seal from God. So he's the one giving the sign, but somehow I turned the sign that he gave into something about me and what I was doing. It's like, well, if he's giving the sign to point to something he's doing, why am I turning the sign into something I'm doing? Well, I didn't really understand that I was entirely doing that, but I was. And um, I really couldn't shake that. I couldn't shake that. Baptism was wow. my act about my faith, and that started to change. Woo woo. Welcome to Bible Theory, homie. Taking the church to the streets, homie. Hey there, welcome back to uh, Bible Theory Podcast. This is your boy, the Chicano Knox, a.k.a. Jesse. I'm out here in the plains uh, near the Rockies out here in Colorado, and I'm holding it down. And but you know what Bible theory is? Let me go ahead and introduce you. We talk about the doctrine of the church from a Reformed perspective. We also do interviews. We we Right now, we're in season, I think, five, and we're breaking Presbyterianism down. And I think this is like the ninth episode. And if you have not seen the first episode and you're skipping and cheating and <laughs> And watching this episode, that's fine. Just go ahead and leave me in the comments and just tell me your honesty. And let me know you skipped other videos just for this one. If uh, if you watch every single video, uh, go ahead and drop a comment. Let me know that you have watched every single video of this season. Uh, so anyways, you know, I have a special guest here with me and, uh, you know, Pastor Chad Vegas. Uh, Pastor Chad, thank you so much for, you know, taking time to join me real quick to um, to talk about your chronicle, your your journey. Right. So for those who don't know you, why, why don't you uh, introduce Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, of who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm a pastor at Sovereign Grace Church in Bakersfield that planted the church. Prior to that, I was a pastor at a, at a kind of what you might call an evangelical megachurch, or you would call an evangelical megachurch, an associate pastor there. For six years, that was the church that I came to faith in and started growing in initially, uh, went to seminary while I was there. I'm in the city where I was born and raised. So that's where I'm in Bakersfield, California. My father was a police officer here who was killed in line of duty when I was a child. And then I was raised here, went away, short stint for a college, came back and then went into high school teaching and then ended up in pastoral ministry like five years later. So it's kind of this journey that's brought me here. Did, did you know you always wanted to become a pastor? Like growing up? No. So, well, when I was growing up, I wasn't a Christian. So I didn't okay. know anything about Christianity. I grew up in a, and when I say a pagan home, I don't just mean that there were crazy drunken drug parties. That was true too. But what I mean is by pagan is um, we were literally like we had a high priestess named Veda and we were reading, you know, you know, like if you will, occultic books. And, and so that's what I grew up in. We weren't committed to any particular truth, really, whatever we thought you could marshal for power. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I started questioning that as early as the sixth grade we got a a, a man my mom was going to marry who we love named rick actually got in a car accident and died mm. and so now that had been two men and so mm. our priestess told us that my mom in a past life had murdered people and this was karma so at that point i realized this is bunk so yeah so i was in sixth wow. grade realized this is bunk what's true and i'd gone to a church with a buddy a little southern baptist church and heard the gospel or at least something that rough was roughly akin to the gospel and thought oh that sounds true so i started searching in what i thought was christianity so i went with one of my buddies to the jehovah's witness kingdom hall went with one to mormon stuff i walked down through my neighborhood to the ro local roman catholic church and then my mom started dating a guy whose mother
mother started taking me to her Protestant church, kind of a dispensational Baptistic church. So that was my freshman year in high school. I started going there, at least to the youth group, regularly okay. myself through high school hmm. and started walking with the Lord seriously in college. So your journey to um, Protestantism was um, through the, the Southern Baptist. Would that be kind of correct? Like, Yeah, yeah. Loosely? Sort of Baptist and then kind okay. of a dispensational Bible church. Okay. Um, you know, it was funny growing up in the occult uh, stuff. You know, I, as soon as I went into like a Mormon church or Jehovah's Witness church, I thought these are cults. I got to get out of here. Like even <laughs> as incomplete. Because you recognize it. I recognize it. So uh, wow. I, I didn't, I thought Rome, Rome was a little closer to the truth. And then I walked into some Protestant churches and thought, oh, this, this seems about Right. So, I mean, I wasn't sure because I hadn't studied much, but it, it felt right at the time. Right, right. I going, I had become a believer. At least I was I was assenting to the faith at that point, but I wasn't really walking with the Lord until college. I was confronted by another gal at college, a senior in college, and she came up to me and con confronted me about my kind of double life. And mm. so told me to get off the fence, walk with Christ or don't. So I thought, you're right, I should. So I did. Well, praise God yeah, for that chick, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so she also just to be my wife. So I like that. Wow. She just straight out told you. She, she Man. Did, turned out to be a great friend. But even then, I had no interest in being a pastor. In fact, in the early days of my wife, we were dating, and my wife said, The one thing I never want to be is a pastor's wife. And I said, That's good because the one thing I never want to be is a pastor. And so that was kind of the world. We both ended up as school teachers. Even when I went to seminary, I had no interest in being a pastor. I went to seminary because I realized I was ignorant about the Bible and wanted to know more. So I started going to a seminary to learn more about the Bible. And people kept asking me, Do you want to be a pastor? And I said, No way. I don't ever want to preach. I don't ever want to pastor. Well, why do you want to study the Bible so much? And I said, Because like I had literally walked into a Ligonier conference in October 1998 and heard R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson and John MacArthur and Jerry Bridges all preaching and I thought this is amazing yeah. and the Lord caught hold of me yeah. and I walked out of there a different human being and I couldn't stop reading and I enrolled wow. in the seminary to learn more and wow and I but I didn't think of that as ministerial calling okay I, so part of that is the context I was going to church in I saw a senior pastor doing kind of entertainment and group therapy mm. and I don't like that like, mm. I didn't know what studying the Bible and teaching it to people had to do with pastoral ministry. I had no mm. idea. Mm. Uh, the only guys I'd ever seen do that were either Bible college professors or conference speakers. I'd never seen it in a local church. I had no idea what was happening to me was kind of an internal call to ministry. I had no idea. Yeah. So, yeah, the Lord, you know, works in mysterious ways. And, you know, I think I believe the Lord has a sense of humor. Like, for example, your wife coming up to you, giving you the hardcore gospel there. Yeah. Repent. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, going up to a Ligonier conference and seeing the big lineup preach, you know, like that. Um, it's kind of like a kid going to Yankee Stadium, you know what I mean? And seeing all the big guys, you know what I mean, for the first time and then falling in love with baseball, you know what I mean? So. There's a journey, right? Because you did become dispensational, you know, evangelical, whatever. And then you all of a sudden you became reform or Calvinistic in, in your soteriology and your approach to theology, at least. Explain that journey yeah, as well, so that, that jump. At the kind of dispensational, Baptistic kind of Bible church I was at, which was gigantic, um, at least by my local standards here in California where I was, it was a large church. I had a pastor there, a couple of pastors there who were Calvinists, actually. 
really. They're dispensational Calvinists, kind of the John MacArthur stripe. You know, you have like 12 pastors on staff and like 50 staff people. So the people are kind of all over the map. And there, there really wasn't a question about what if our theological convictions don't align. It's just, is what you're doing working? Great. Keep doing it. You know, so do people like it? Do crowds come? That's all that really mattered. So a couple of the pastors were Calvinistic in the John MacArthur sense of that term and started con confronting me about my not being a Calvinist. And eventually I knew I needed to learn more about the Bible. I didn't know what I thought about all this Calvinist stuff. I was invited to a Ligonier conference. I didn't know what that was. I just mm. said, okay, I'll go. So in 98, I was teaching high school. I went to a Ligonier conference and I was stunned. I had never heard of any of these people. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, I'd never heard of any of them. They opened the Bible and started teaching and like my heart caught fire. I don't know what else to say. Like it was, un it's, it's unquenchable. When I say that, I'm saying 25 years later, that hasn't slowed down. It's just as much as it was then, if not more. I started studying and studying and studying and ended up enrolling at a seminary in order to get more. The seminary I went to was based on my church's recommendation at the time. They said, why don't you go ahead and go to um, Talbot Theological Seminary? That fits us as a church. So I said, okay, this is my church. That's where I'll go. And while I was there, um, I had a couple of professors who pushed my theological convictions further. One was named Alan Gomes. He was our um, historical theology professor. And another was named Kevin Lewis. He was a systematic theology professor. And both of them got me reading historic reformed guys. And so I started rethinking everything I thought. And at the time, a year into seminary, my church called me into pastoral ministry. And so I kept commuting down and being a pastor and just realizing how do I work out what I believe about ministry with what I believe doctrinally. And it doesn't really fit with this church. And over time, I kind of came to realize that over a six-year period. In the fifth year of that, a young man came along and challenged me. He's one of my associate pastors now. He challenged me on my dispensationalism, asked me what I knew about covenant theology. <laughs> and I told him, <laughs> uh-oh. <I>, <laughs> That's the shirt I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I remember telling him, it's replacement theology. It's latently anti-Semitic. It's platonic. Whatever nasty right. words I thought I could throw at it, I threw at it. Right. Said, have you ever read it? I said, well, I've read lots of critiques of it. And he said, well, if you're going to throw around all these critiques, don't you think you you should read it, read the guys before you critique them. Don't you think that's at least required? And I thought, you know what? You're right. I should read them. So I bought a bunch of their books and I read them. And by the time I was done, I was like, oh no, these arguments are better than mine. And so I, over the course of time, moved in a more covenantal direction. At that point though, mind you, it was Westminster federalism that I had moved to. Okay. But I did not know that that necessitated a view of baptism. So I was actually talking to a PCA elder and I told him I'm going to go plant a church. And he said, hey, well, are you guys going to be a Presbyterian or a Reformed church? And I said, well, I well, I, I don't want to baptize infants. I don't think that's right. And so he said, okay, well, then you're a London Baptist confession guy. And I didn't even know what that was. But he said, basically, it's the Westminster Confession for Baptists. So I went and read it and thought, yeah, this seems acceptable. And honestly, when you read London Baptist Confession chapter seven, it leaves enough out that a Westminster Federalist guy could read that and go, yeah, I agree with that chapter just on a reading. I don't necessarily know what the majority of 1689 Federalists meant by it, but right. but it sounds fine to me. So I guess I agree. So when we planted the church, we were teaching Westminster Federalism and only baptizing believers, but receiving people who were baptized as infants into membership without requiring rebaptism. So we weren't really like that kind of Baptist. So we were kind of a mess. And the, that young man who confronted me was actually about my views of dis dispensationalism. He was actually um, my co-planter and he's been my associate pastor for most of the history of the church. <laughs>
so far with your chronicle, it sounds like God has put people in your life at the right time to say the right things to you that have enough gravitas to put you in, in the right frame of mind or thinking or in the right place theologically. You know what I mean? Yep. I don't think that's a coincidence. No, yeah. the Lord has clearly brought people along who have pushed me on things. And by God's grace, honestly, I think I'm a person who, when I hear something I don't know about, and someone can give me some kind of reasonably biblical justification for it, I think I should probably read and study that rather than just dismiss it, just because I haven't ever heard it. So I, I should probably find out about that. And, and and many times people bring that, and I think what they brought to me was just as bad as I originally thought it was. <laughs> and occasionally... I think, oh man, I need to change my perspective on this. So um, I've never sufficiently thought this through. I could definitely relate to that where I was given a certain view and told what to what to believe. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then when I found out, oh, that's what they believe, that that's what it is. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I, I, I would say those things or thought this way that was wrong. Like that was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really embarrassing. Like So, yeah. so, so going back in time of thinking of, okay, you, you picked up the second London Baptist um, confession and you're like, okay, this is where I'm going. I, I'm rowing the boat down this pathway of the river. Right. It seemed like you were kind of friendly to Presbyterianism. Oh, yeah. A lot of Baptists that I've talked to that I know from like Twitter that are pastors, even those who are not pastors, um, they, uh, they have a, an aggression against it. Like a, you know, like a Bruce Lee, like, ah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, it, obviously it's a different journey, but for you, it seemed like you had a like a like a like an endearment some kind of connection some kind of like you know nod <laughs> but what were your views on the presbyterians you know what i mean the presbyterianism like what was your like your biases at that time what, what was your like your straw man what was that echo in your mind that said nah i'm not going back down that way or whatever what was it i'm trying to get psychological here <laughs> it's, it's great. what's my psychology and you're asking me about my personal psychology in 2005 and six, really, when I started this church. <laughs> I think, you know, I was friendly toward Presbyterians because I had been, uh, there were there were a few different sources in which I was reading. One was stuff that Sproul was putting out, Presbyterian. Another was stuff that Sinclair Ferguson was putting out, Presbyterian. And then a third was Banner of Truth books, mostly Presbyterian. And so I'm reading all of these guys, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whoever, and my world is being rocked by what mm -hmm. they're having to say. And and, um, I'm going further back into systematic theologies like Turretin or I had read Burkhoff and Bob Inc. hadn't been published yet, but Turretin's volumes were out. So I was reading those. I was being challenged on a number of levels about my thinking. However, I think once I shook dispensationalism, it's sometimes you can take the boy out of dispensationalism, but it's hard to get dispensationalism out of the boy. And so I think I still held on to this notion that there's some radical discontinuity between the new covenant church and, and every every church and every church prior to us, if you will, the whole of the Old Testament church age, right. that there was a radical at the root discontinuity, which is necessary to my dispensationalism. I also was finding more and more was necessary to Baptist covenant theology. I didn't really entirely understand it at the time. I just thought, I believe the Westminster federalism is right. The only answer I have is that maybe the Baptist view is correct because the new covenant is, is kind of this eschatological escalation. You sort of reach this point and covenant administrations where um, there's no more invisible and visible 
or, or internal and external that everything is just the regenerate church. And because we've reached this point of eschatology, based on my view of Jeremiah 31, 31 at the time, which is, well, they all shall know me, right? So, okay, then it's only a fully regenerate church membership. And um, so we have to stay Baptist. And to be honest with you, the baptismal view of Presbyterians seemed Catholic, Roman Catholic to me. I, do, I think I thought of baptism too much in very subjective terms. It's really about what I'm doing, not about what God's promising or signing. It's a sign and seal from God. So he's the one giving the sign, but somehow I turned the sign that he gave into something about me and what I was doing. It's like, well, if he's giving the sign to point to something he's doing, why am I turning the sign into something I'm doing? Well, I didn't really understand that I was entirely doing that, but I was. I really couldn't shake that. Baptism was wow. my act about my mm. faith. And that started to change. In fairness, just to be really clear, good Reformed Baptists, like some of my brothers like Rich Barcelos or Sam Renahan, et cetera, are not going to say baptism is about my act or my faith. That's what I was coming out of. I'm not impugning them with that definition. Um, and real quick, Kay, can you explain like in a two minute or one minute, two minute thing, what is Westminster federalism for those listening? Going yeah, back to that real quick. Going. I keep saying it. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, God made a covenant with Adam, the covenant of works. And Adam, if Adam had been perfectly, perpetually obedient to God's commands, he would have merited eternal life. Not merited eternal life because he somehow put God in his debt, but merited eternal life because God covenanted with him that he would give him an eternal eternal life if he was obedient. However, if he was disobedient, God covenanted that he would die. And so God gives the sacraments of the two trees, right? The tree of the good knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life. If Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will be disobedient to God, he'll break the covenant and he'll die. And then all of humanity is now fallen in Adam because he did eat from that tree. We're all sinful. We're all subject to death separation from God physically and spiritually, suffering his eternal wrath as rebels against his law. When Adam violates this, God then promises in Genesis 3.15 that I'm going to send a second Adam, one who will keep that covenant of law, right? That covenant of works. He'll keep right. that covenant in every regard, and he'll keep it both in its precept, the commands, and its penalties for your violation of it. And so um, that, that seed of that mother promise, if you will, in Genesis 3.15, then develops throughout the New um, the Old Testament until Christ comes in the New Testament. Now, at this point, every Baptist is in agreement with me. We call that that um, that announcement in Genesis 3.15 the covenant of grace. All the ba covenantal Baptists are going to say, yes, that's exactly right. That was the covenant of works in the garden. The covenant of grace then is announced in Genesis 3.15, and it's progressively revealed until Christ comes in the Gospels and, you know, pours out a spirit and acts and the church goes from there. And he's the second Adam. So he paid the penalty for us for the violation of the law and he kept the law perfectly in our place. So we're credited with righteousness. And now we're better than where Adam was because Adam never merited eternal life. Christ did. And that's ours because he's ours and everything he has is ours. So everybody pretty much agrees with that story. The difference is, if you will, Westminster Federalism or maybe a better way to say is Reformed Covenant Theology. Presbyterian Reformed Covenant Theology of the non-Baptist variety is going going to say that actually that covenant of grace began at Genesis 3.15. Not it was just being revealed starting there, but it's but it began there so that everybody in the Old Testament is in the covenant of grace and in different external administrations of it. So the Abrahamic covenant is an external form that looks different than the new covenant, but it's the same gracious covenant in this sense. Christ and his benefits are what's being offered to Abraham. Christ and his benefits are being offered to Moses or through Moses. Christ and his benefits through David. And that begins in Genesis 3.15. And so the debate is, is Genesis 3.15 the point at which the covenant of grace 
is beginning to be revealed or Genesis 3.15, the point at which the covenant of grace also began in history, started being administered. I always held that it was not only revealed to Genesis 3.15, but it started there. It was inaugurated there. Whereas my covenantal Baptist friends say, no, it starts with, it begins at, it's inaugurated at um, the cross of Christ. Right. So that's where the continuity would come into play, right? Because once you start saying it started there, then, then you start seeing more of a a clean continuity progression there rather than... Yeah, so I'm saying every covenant, every covenant post-fall is offering the same substantive good, if you will. Mm. What's it offering? It's offering Jesus. Every single one is offering Christ and all the benefits that we have in him. Union and communion with the triune God, forgiveness of sins, declaration of righteousness, regeneration, new life, etc. They're all... All those covenants are offering that. They're offering that and they are that is being administered through those covenants in a typical or shadowy form so that um, the blood of bulls and goats does not remove sin, does not take away sin. The blood of Christ does. But the blood of Christ is being administered through the blood of bulls and goats in a typical or shadowy form to which those people, right. which those people believe in the coming Messiah. And so their sins were, were taken away. Now, I want to go back to your influences real quick. I know you mentioned quite a few of them. Um, what were your major influences and how did they help you get where you're at today? You know, you know, outside of the influences of books, which obviously books are a major influence, especially in my life, Banner of Truth books. I bought so many Banner of Truth books and they've influenced me dramatically. John Owen being maybe preeminent among the Banner books that have, that have influenced me. But the influences outside of that, as far as men, people, my own elders have been a huge influence. They actually moved to Presbyterianism or Reformed theology before I did. I was, if you will, the last of the elders to come here, which was, you know, just a whole interesting process in our own church. They, when I asked them how they got there, they all said through your teaching. So that was funny because I wasn't there yet, right? <laughs> um, oh, interesting. Yeah, um, but... I think um, R. Scott Clark was a huge influence on me in the early years. I was reading him and he just ticked me off. I, I told Scott, I need to write a blog that's like from the jerk blogger R. Scott Clark to, you know, the personal mentor or something. Like he, I just, when I was reading his blogs, I thought, what a jerk you were. Like, you know, that's what I thought about him at the time. So I started commenting. This is, I'm talking about 08, 09, 2010. Okay. I started commenting or when, whenever, back in that period, maybe 2011, I don't know. I started commenting and Scott would just say, hey, why don't you give me a call? And then we would talk on the phone and I thought, oh, he's not a jerk at all. He just comes across like one on his blog. And so I, I started reading, realizing he was very helpful and he, he helped me along in, in a lot of regards and challenged me because he was basically calling, saying that all guys like me weren't really reformed. And I thought, oh, of course I'm reformed. I say I'm reformed. So I'm reformed, right? Crossway thinks I'm reformed and John MacArthur thinks I'm reformed. So I, I you know, I, I must be reformed. And he was challenging that. So that got me thinking. So he's a big influence on me in a way like sandpaper, right? So Smoothing off a lot of rough edges and helping me understand where I was not very historically rooted. Carl Truman was an influence on me. He was my advisor in a program, academic program I was in, and a friend who pressed me on confessionalism. He pressed me on making a decision. He said, Your church is not Baptist or Presbyterian. Get off the fence and make a decision. You know, I've had people like that in my life. Be a good Presbyterian or good Baptist. So I said, Okay, I need to think that through. Rich Barcelos was a big influence on me. He's a Reformed Baptist. He's a good friend.
friend. He's really pushed me a lot in hermeneutics and got me reading more biblical theology than I was reading. So he's really helpful um, in a lot of regards. And then Ian Hamilton probably is the biggest personal influence as far as among Reformed pastors. He's become a very dear friend and really helping me understand what this looks like in pastoral practice, changing mm. the way I see my pastoral ministry in general. Yeah. Um, you know, so we haven't, we didn't talk a lot about the baptism issue, actually, Ian and I didn't. I think a lot of people thought because he was out here a lot, we spent a lot of time with in each other's homes, that he must have, we must have talked a lot about baptism. We really never did. For me, he was a huge influence just showing me what classical pastoral ministry looks like. Visitation of people's homes, caring for the saints, actively being doing evangelism out in the community, preaching the gospel. Right? Just uh, typical Puritan behavior. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and it was shocking to me in a lot of regards in good ways. Right. So that changed me a ton. Yeah. So there, there are other men I could mention, but if I had to just like pin it down to, to one person, I would say my own elders. So that's not one person. That's a group of men, but right. But I, I, I don't know what to say. They're the men that I do ministry with day in and day out who challenge me. And a lot of times my members, some of whom, you know, who are yeah. not afraid to challenge and ask hard questions and they make you think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm very thankful for people like that. You know, I think everybody should have a group of people that would um, question them and challenge them, uh, you know what I mean? And push them to the right direction and make them think, right? Because that's yep. what people in your life is supposed to do. into this next phase here of understanding the, the the psychological change here that happened. Everybody else in your church, your elders was uh, um, covenant theology. And then all of a sudden you woke up and you're like, yeah, me too. You know, <laughs> like yeah, how yeah, has yeah. the psychological change, you know, been? It's, it's hard to know. For me, it's been a 15 year battle against maybe the inevitable. That sounds strange. But the first time I heard infant baptism being shared, I'm like, do those people even read the Bible? But then I thought, gosh, these are the guys I respect the most. So as far as biblical scholars. So why, why am I saying that? You know, and, and so I thought I should probably read some of it. I wasn't really convinced early on, but I thought, well, if you accept their view of the Bible and really came to the realization, if you accept their view of the covenants and you accept their view of the people then you then of god those two things then then their view of the sacraments follows necessarily follows and that took me a while to grasp that and i fought it all along so when i preached the book of acts i was thinking and i started studying households i thought this is interesting i started studying the ministry of the holy spirit in acts the, the outpouring of the holy spirit and his mission and realizing well galatians 3 14 says that the promise of the holy spirit is the promise given to abraham and so now he's being poured out and you th this formula to you and to your the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off and that sounds an awful lot like isaiah to some degree even riffing on peter riffing on isaiah riffing on genesis 17 and so i'm thinking wow this is interesting what do i do with this and and the household language tracing that back and so the ways in which i saw the new covenant fulfilling things that were the restoration of israel clearly acts 1 8 commenting on isaiah 32 i just started seeing all this it started clicking for me and i was wrestling with the continuity i was seeing across the bible and then um i taught the book of galatians and galatians chapter 3 started causing me to wrestle, particularly with this notion that the covenant with Abraham didn't end. He says, 
full on, it didn't end. And then Moses came along as a, if you will, to raise up a church underage, an immature church. And then until the maturity came, the mature one, the son, the heir, Christ came. And I thought, oh, so Moses and the new covenant are two stages of maturity of this Abrahamic covenant. And I wasn't sure what to do with that. And the gospel was being preached beforehand to Abraham, right? And the gospel, 1 Peter 3, was being preached by Noah. And so I'm realizing, ah, what do I do with all this? I was also preaching through or teaching through the entire Old Testament and the biblical theology of the Old Testament. I taught every book of the Old Testament. And as I was doing that, all these things started to pop for me. And then it was when I preached the book of Hebrews that it was over. So I preached the book of Hebrews for a few years. I read the seven volume commentary by John Owen three times and about 20 plus other commentaries trying to get my head around that book. Studied it pretty intensely. And as I did, I realized, yeah, I'm all the way here. Like I'm all the way here. Hebrews 11 was where the penny finally dropped for me. And that was because I realized that we're listing a group of Old Testament saints who are waiting for the hope of the coming Christ. And Hebrews 11, 1 said, they have the substance, the hypostasis by faith. They have the substance, which is Christ, by faith. The Old Testament saints, not they looked forward to the substance one day coming. They had it. It was theirs by faith. And I, I thought, oh, I guess I'm done with this conversation. So at that point, I realized I've got to start seeing, I've got to start probably baptizing children of believers. What was your first uh, baptism of your of an infant? We haven't yet. So, okay. so yeah, to back up, our elders decided um, that we needed to resubscribe our confessions because we had to make, we had a bylaw change that required members to resubscribe their membership. So the elders needed to resubscribe their confessions. We did, and all the elders turned in the Westminster Confession. Um, they had options. Everybody turned that in. I said, hey guys, I think we this is a seminal moment. But it was all in the middle of COVID and building things. And we were starting a classical school and Radius was growing and we were starting a theological institute. And it was like, we were buried under a workload. And I came up for air six months later and I thought, hey guys, we still need to tell our congregation about this. And they're like, well, you're about to go on sabbatical. So we need to wait till after your sabbatical. So before I went on sabbatical, I just gave them the option. Hey, when I come back, you guys need to tell me, do you want to make this change? Or do we just want to say, we all believe this, but church is doing really well. And we don't want to blow the church over it because we don't think it's that important. Or do you think, nope, these are our convictions. We're going to live with them. What's it going to be? So I came back from my sabbatical. We met at an elder retreat and the elders said, uh, we're going to go forward. I said, well, why not let the second generation deal with it? That was basically my question, right? Why not? <laughs> let the next generation deal with it. And their response, because I realized the pastoral workload it would be. And their response was essentially, you made the mess, you clean it up. So I said, okay. So I announced that two weeks later to our congregation. And then I told them we're going to go through some period of time of teaching and helping them understand it. So I went around to all of our small groups, um, sent out things for them to read and listen to. Come that January, February. So that was September. I announced it. Come that January, February. I started the series, the Heidelblog carries. He doesn't carry mm -hmm. two of them. The one I deal with, dealt with the Lord's Supper and the one I dealt with mode of baptism, but he carries the, the main six dealing with the primary issue. I preached those. We had we went back to our small groups and asked them any other questions. We asked the congregation any other questions. And so we just started the first baptism class, the three-week class for the parents of children who want to be baptized. Our first baptism of children will be October 29th. Yeah, so right on Reformation Day. <laughs> Once again, the irony of God in yeah, your life. Yeah. Right. So, man, like, did, did did you lose friends over this? Like, did you lose um, no videos or anything consequential? No. So I'm still a professor at the International Reform Baptist Seminary uh, for missions and evangelism. I'm still a prof for the Institute for Public Theology of Public Theology for founders on missions and evangelism, church planning stuff. I'm still friends with Tom Askell. I let him know right away. I'm still friends with Jim Renahan. I let him know right away. I mean, it's, I told them I had to notify them after I notified my congregation. 
investigation because I didn't think it was right to notify people prior to the church knowing. And they mm -hmm. received well, I let my buddies like Rich Barcelos and all those guys know. They what did they say? They say congratulations. Here's a here's a, uh, a gift yeah, card. <laughs> I, I'm con I'm sure they're disappointed. At the same time, they're godly, charitable men who just you know and probably weren't very surprised actually because I had been arguing with them for some time about the nature of covenants, and the comeback was, if you hold that view, how are you going to keep baptizing only believers? And so I think to them, my becoming you know Presbyterian, if you will, or or taking a pedo baptism view was not terribly surprising. I don't think it was like a, it wasn't like an earthquake for them. Like what? I think they thought, <laughs> oh, it seemed like it was going there to us. I think that's what mm. they would probably tell you. They'd probably tell you they knew it before I did. I bet some of them would actually. So yeah, mm. I announced those groups. I mean, I announced it to the church already. No friendships are really lost. I mean, obviously to some degree, there's a shift in your friendships. So now I'm trying to figure out where our church is going to land denominationally. And so I'm making friends in a kind of new world, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. And and, and so some of those friendships are on hold. It's like if you change churches, you might still be friends with the people at the old church, but now you're all your tensions over here, right? With these new right. friends. Making. And just a natural thing, not an animosity thing. I had some people leave the church, not many, maybe five families. Most of them left quite well. A couple of them left in, in what I would consider sad or unfortunate ways. I Five five families is not that bad. That's, that's below average. Usually churches split. Usually churches fall apart. Yeah, given that we have like over 400 people, five families isn't that oh, bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's probably a group in our church who thinks this is great, a group in our church who thinks it's not great, but they don't have any reason to leave, and a group in our church who doesn't care that much, you know, <laughs> like either way. So, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, and I don't really know how to splice that up. Look, if people leave, I understand. If they have sure. strong convictions and they need to go, I absolutely tell our people, I love you. I want to be your pastor to the end, either my end or yours. I want to walk in life with you and point you to Christ and pray with you and care, with you, care for you and walk through hard things and happy things together. But I completely understand if you feel the need to move on because we've changed things on you. I understand that. What you've done is completely ethical and and, and according to the pastoral ministry of walking your sheep through this change of yours and through, through the leadership, what you're doing is you're just leading them to greener pastors as a pastor, feeding them right faithfully from the scriptures like you always have done. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, we told our people just, just to back up a little bit too. We told our people more than once that because our church was sort of split on this issue, my associate pastor, Jason, this guy who co-planted with me, he's always had this position, but he's all, I've been the senior. So I've kind of like gotten my way, if you will. And, um, our people are used to that. And we said one day that needs to get settled. Like it can't be like this forever. It's not like they didn't know it was possible. They were shocked because it was impossible here. It was more like, I think most people hoped we would land long-term on the Baptist side. That'd be my guess. Mm -hmm. um, so the people who left probably thought for sure we'd land on the Baptist side. And I'm sure they probably had me tell them more than once over the years, oh, I think we'll land on the Baptist side because I thought we would. So my guess is, here's what I would tell you. I would bet money that there are people you could talk to feel a little bit distrustful because, hey, uh, more than once you said, I think we're going to land on the Baptist side and then we didn't. And I and I can understand why they would feel a lack of trust for me as a result of that. At the same time, I want to tell them, well, that's what I believed at the time. Like, it's I wasn't lying to you. That's what I thought. Which is honest. But, that's like, yeah, anyone could say that, you know? Right. And I'm not the Pope. So I don't have, just because I said that we'd land on the Baptist side doesn't make it so, right? There's a group of elders here. So right, right. it's not just whatever I say. Anyway, but yeah, that's, that's where we went.
So o- overcoming some of the objections, let's go back to the household stuff. You read Acts, you read Isaiah, and you're like, back in the day, a Baptist would be like, this household, this household stuff in the book of Acts, it doesn't include infants, they say, because there's no babies in there. It doesn't mention babies. It's just his households. Like, who are you to say there's babies? That's like a generic Baptist point of view, I guess. Yeah. What it's, would you say to our, that real quick? Yeah. Well, household has a meaning. We, we're we're going to look at Acts and ask the question, who's the audience? right? The audience, I mean, you're going to go out to Samaritans and Gentiles, but the audience initially is the Jews, right? These are people for over 2000 years. They've known what a household is even longer than that. They've known what a household means. They know what that means. They know that that includes their children. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 7, 1, the first use of household in the Bible, Genesis 7, 1, Noah, because he's a righteous man, his kids get on the boat. Now they're grownups for sure, but they're not all righteous. In fact, when they get off the ark, things don't go particularly well with one of his sons, do they? Like right. he's a wicked guy. So yeah. it's not like they're all be- righteous believers, but because he's righteous, they all get to get on this ship, the whole household, get to get on this ark because God is covenanted with Noah and his household. Now you go down through the Bible, God is covenanting with men and their household. That always includes their children. That is just obvious throughout the Old Testament. In every covenant, the children are included. When Jesus comes, when the Son of God walks around in the flesh, he picks up infants and says, to such belong the kingdom and blesses them. He only blesses two groups, by the way, in all the gospels, infants and the apostles at his ascension, right? Only time he blessed them. So his attitude toward the infants of the believers in him who bring the infants seems to be similar to everything you see in the Old Testament. That seems to be continuous with what you've seen, his attitude toward them, um, the way he sees them. He's using language like believe and you will be saved, you and your whole household. When we get into the book of Acts then, and you've got a group of Jews standing there saying, hey, the promise of Abraham has come, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the promises for you and for your children for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God shall call, that drives you all the way back to Genesis 17 and to Joel 2, which is dealing with the restoration of Israel. Genesis 17, which is the Abrahamic promise. And you start to say, what are the Jews hearing? Are they hearing, oh, by the way, your children have been kicked out of the covenantal family. We don't mean them. Well, to you and your children doesn't sound like they've been kicked out. And so as you go down and then the household baptisms, I'm asking the question of Baptists, why they think the most important question is, where do you have proof that children are a part of the covenant community? How come the most important question isn't this? Where do we have proof God kicked the children out of the covenant community? And when we go to the New Testament epistles, the people being addressed are called the saints in Ephesus, for example. And then he addresses children in Ephesians 6. Right. He calls them all holy ones. So right. your children are holy, set apart, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. We can keep working through this, but the point is, all you see is the continuity because what is the gospel doing? It's restoring what's lost, right? It's it's grace restoring nature. What was lost? A man and his wife and their children walking as image bearers of God in true righteousness and holiness. Lost. That is all being restored in the gospel of grace. And so we see that being played out. Thus, I think there's the, the more important question is really just where are the children excluded? The answer right. is going to be for a Baptist. Well, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, picked up in Hebrews 8, says that the new covenant it has only believers and so then you have to wrestle over that passage they say well where are the kids included and i'm like well where, where are the kids not included right correct. yeah correct um another one um let's just say a baptist would or you know a typical evangelical would say i think i think most evangelicals who are not reform at all i think they will say oh baptism is by immersion only like baptize baptism means immersion like oh like you just dunk them you know that's that that's the mode anything outside of that is um a tradition 
Christian, Roman Catholic, coming to the Reformed faith, how ha how have you handled the mode of baptism? Oh yeah, I mean, look, I I don't think ultimately the mode of baptism is a particularly important question because um, if I if I immerse a baby, Baptists aren't going to be happy with that, you know. So, like, the question is, is the you know they're like, okay, as long as you immerse them, that's fine. They're they're really <laughs> asking a different question. Do they are they rightful parties to the to baptism or not? Is what they're asking. But I did deal with that issue of mode, and I think we've got to ask the question about how baptizo is used in Leviticus and some other Old Testament texts because it is in the Septuagint or at least those Greek translations of the Old Testament. You also see it used in some other Old Testament texts, and then in the New Testament. How is it being used? Well, it's not always used the same way. I think there are a couple cases to make that it's being used for immersion. I don't actually think most of the cases to be made are for immersion. Acts 2, Jesus says in Acts 1 that he's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit, baptizo, which John the Baptist had already promised in Matthew 3, if you remember. Jesus then says that not many days from now he'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. That's, that's effusion. That's not immersion. They weren't dunked under the Holy Spirit. He was poured out upon them. First Corinthians 10, baptizo can't possibly mean immersion when they go through the Red Sea when the, in the baptism of Moses. None of them were dunked under water. They walked on dry ground, which is miraculous on a number of levels because usually if you part a river, you would think the ground would be muddy, but nope, dry, right? And so they walk on dry ground, which is pointing you back to Genesis 1 as well and some of that. But my point is they're not immersed there, right? They go through right. that. If, if you look at First Peter 3, Noah's Ark, baptism corresponds to that. They're not immersed either. In fact, the people being immersed in both Moses' baptism and in Noah's day, the immersion of, of people were the enemies of God, right? right? It, it, it was like death. It was death for them. And then there are a number of other uses of baptism. It's picked up a sprinkling of the blood in, in Hebrews 9, which is pointing you back to Leviticus. It's talked about dipping into liquid in, in some places. Probably the three clear Old Testament cases where baptism is immersion are Leviticus 11.32, 2 Kings 5.14, and Job 9.31. I would say those are clearly Old Testament texts about immersion, but there are also like Exodus 12.22 cannot mean immersion because you're dipping a branch into water, I mean to blood. It can't be uh, immersion. You're not dunking it under, you're just dipping it to sprinkle. Leviticus 4.14.51 would not be immersion. Joshua 3.15 would not be immersion. Mark 7.1-5, through 5, not immersion. The washing, why didn't your disciples wash? That's also picked up in Luke. Um, did it mean they needed to take a whole bath or just wash their hands? But it doesn't differ differentiate in Luke. And so, you know, Luke 11, 37 through 39 says that the disciples didn't, why didn't they get baptized before dinner? Well, we don't mean of dipping in water. It's not like take a whole shower or a bath. The point was washing their hands. Should have been probably pouring water onto their hands and washing it. So there's a lot of places where baptism just means effusing, dipping, immersing in some cases, sprinkling in some cases. I, you just can't say, oh, it always means um, to immerse. It's just not true. And the word baptizo does not mean to immerse. Um, that's just a false premise to begin with. It's to dip typically. So anyway. What about another one? If you were really a true Reformed Baptist, you would never become Presbyterian because like if you did, that means you were not really confessional or reform at all. I know that that kind of straw man argument seems more like a Twitter post because I have seen well, it as I a Twitter post I before. I don't 
I don't really know because I think it would be fair to charge me with not really having been Reformed Baptist in the sense that I never taught 1689 federalism. I never agreed with it. So, I mean, if somebody said you never really agreed with the Baptist position, I think that would be a fair charge with regard to me. But there are Reformed Baptists who are were legitimate 1689 Federalists. In fact, I just talked to one on the phone a couple of weeks ago who, who is a part of a Reformed Baptist um, denomination, well, association. He He's 69, 1689 Federalist, full full confessional 1689 church. And he's now converted, if you will, to Presbyterian views and is trying to work that out with his elders. And I don't know what his future holds. Well, I won't name him or his location, but but he clearly was full board 69 federalism and he's he's abandoned ship on that so i do think guys jared longshore um you know was um the yeah, editor he was yeah. he was one yeah. of the editors of sam renahan's book he definitely believed that, that book was true and right when i first met with him um and then he moved from there i can't account for his current views because we haven't had enough in-depth talk about his current views i know he's with doug wilson and i would have some issues with that covenant theology that i tend to see there but some significant ones but I don't know exactly what Jared's position is. Um, so I would have to ask him now, but he certainly was in the 1689 camp at one point. Again, this is where I would be accused of not being a good Baptist ever. I always believed in elder rule or pre rule by presbyteros. And I always thought connectionalism was good. I never thought connectionalism was necessary to the being of the church, the essay of the church, but I always thought it was to the, you know, the bene essay, the, the well-being of the church. Um, so I've always kind of held that, but Baptists don't tend to connect that way. I mean, a lot of what you see in contemporary Presbyterian circles looks a lot more like the 1689 confession, frankly, as to its view of associationalism. There is some formal authority, but the American Presbyterian movement has has weakened its understanding of confessionalism, I mean, connectionalism, sorry, to the point of seeming almost congregational in that if we don't like what the denomination is doing, we can just leave, right? So, so at right. some point, how much authority they really have if you can just leave whenever you want. But yeah, so I, I think it's wise for churches to be connected, but I always have. I, I would say the biggest thing that's changed for me, probably people understand, is understanding the, the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper and church membership. I think I had a really sloppy understanding of those topics where I didn't really know how they were all related. And um, so my even the way I come at um, people who want to credibly profess faith, I realize that someone credibly professing faith. Now, a Reformed Baptist is going to say, of course, we always knew that. But this is I'm talking about me coming out of evangelical background. I just thought if you profess faith, uh, you we baptize you. And the credible part, we tested a little bit, but I didn't take it seriously because I didn't think as soon as you're a baptized believer, you should be a communing member of the church. I didn't think that. I thought, well, um, we can baptize you as a believer and then you can go through our membership classes and then eventually, you know, you're a communing member of the church. And I realized, well, wait a minute, why am I not training them for membership in the church when I'm teaching them about baptism before we baptize them so they understand this is the sign of the fact and seal of you're a part of the visible church. And you're a part of this church and under its discipline. And then you take the Lord's Supper. So I, I didn't understand that relationship as well as I should have. So we were baptizing children who were eight and then not letting them commune and be members until they were like 16, 17, 18. And it's like, so what, where were they, right? Oh, but we were baptizing yeah. them on public profession of faith. That was the warrant. We've changed on that so that we'll baptize your children, but the little children, but not on the public profession of faith. If they want to commune, they have to profess faith credibly, right? Which comes later. Right. Obviously right. you can't do that with small children.
for young men listening, what would be your advice for them who are, I'm assuming that the people are, these young men are maybe Baptist or Reformed Baptist, right? Um, leaning. And they're very open to Presbyterianism in terms of like, yeah, I'm, I, I I would like to read some John Owen. I'm, I'm I'm open to learn, right? What would be your advice as a pastor to to those kind of young men who might be watching? Know your Bibles well. Um, read good books. If you want to read like, uh, you know, I don't, I could make a whole list, but read good books. Know your Bibles well. Pray a lot that the Lord would help you understand the word and find godly mentors to, to give you good direction, especially if you're seeking pastoral ministry. And be patient. Be patient. You don't have to be in a hurry to come to conclusions. You can just start working through this and figuring it out. And don't cause problems in your church. So if you're in a church and your view's changing, you're the one changing. So don't go criticizing them. You came there, that was that way, and now you're changing, right? So you might, you, that may mean that you need to move along at some point, maybe, unless you can't find a church as solid. And I will tell you, I don't think you should leave a solid church to, to go to a weak church that you think has the right sacramental practice. Stay in a solid gospel preaching church. There are some cities where I have brothers who are Reformed Baptist pastors. I could not be an elder or pastor in their church, but if I moved to that city, I would go to their church. I disagree with them or I'd plant a church, right? But I would disagree with them on this. But the other churches around them are much weaker in their preaching of the word and hold, and, and upholding the seriousness of, of Christ's holiness, etc. So I'd go to their church and not those other weaker churches just because they give me the right sacramental practice. Yeah. And here's a juicy one. Uh, last one. Um, what Presbyterian denomination or uh, denominations are on the table? On, on your mind in your mind well right now we're talking to the pca we're talking because i because of my friends in, in south carolina north carolina virginia i have some buddies out there who really want us to join the pca i'm not as connected to the pca in california actually as i am out there um especially the greenville presbyterian theological seminary guys I've mm -hmm. seen there. talking to the opc the southern california opc there's some great guys there that we're really we thank the lord for and so we're having conversations with them and we're talking to the urc which is not technically presbyterian reformed but I have some good friends there as well. And we're just trying to work through the various issues and what are deal breakers for our particular church, uh, what fits where we're at and what doesn't. And so then we're working through all that and we'll make a decision here in the next year, I think, some point. Well, I'm excited, man. If I got to put in my, my bid, uh, my vote, I would be more biased toward, toward the P PCA if you can. <laughs> just a little, oh, yeah. my, my, my yeah. little vote right there. But I, my only hesitation is, you know, joining another war. I'm not sure if I'm interested in it. The, yeah, um, you know, well, there, there's wars, every, there's there's wildfires, you know, all over the yeah, United yeah, States. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. exactly. You know what I mean? So the church right now is having a lot of wildfires. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, if it hasn't happened there yet, it, 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 you know, it will get there. They'll yep. get one. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. For those who don't know, I do have um, um, a store. You could go ahead and hit the hit up this uh, QR code. Just boom, buy a shirt, support the show, um, and go ahead and support my addiction. Buy me a coffee. Two, three bucks, man, goes a long way, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, for those returning, thank you so much. And for those who are joining us for the first time, don't forget to hit that like, subscribe, and that bell. Three things that will help me out and tell the algorithm that, yo, th this is good stuff. So until next time, grace and peace. God bless.